listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. We are wrapping up uh, this series. The word that we're going to look at this morning is intentionality. And it was the spring of 2015, and my wife Lexi was, was pregnant with our first child. Uh, and there really isn't much like the excitement and the anticipation of waiting on that first child. Uh, I'm not going to go into like what, what the females feel. I'm not going to go down that road. That's a dangerous game to play, gentlemen. Uh, but I was very excited uh, I was uh, eagerly anticipating this first child. We got the room ready, all that stuff. And we get back into, uh, into the doctor's office about midway point. And this was the appointment in which we would find out the gender of the baby. And they do the sonogram. Everything's healthy. They give us the gender and they write it down on this piece of paper, put in this little envelope. And they said, hey, you can open that when you're ready, right? So we sped walk to the car, not run, just sped. Okay, just a little, a little quicker, all right? Got into the car, and we opened this envelope, and eagerly anticipating, I see four letters, G-I-R-L. And I got to say, my face told a story. And it, it wasn't the, you know, I, like, I, man, I needed a boy. It wasn't that story. I'm team girl dad all the way, all right? But I didn't hide it well. And I didn't know what this feeling was until probably about a year ago. Because it wasn't just nervousness. It was weightiness. You know, looking back in that moment, I think what I couldn't put to words was that the child that was forming in my wife was going to be somebody someday. And as her daddy, I was going to play a huge part in the somebody that she was going to become. You see, we are formed primarily through two things. People and experiences. If I had you list of all the formative times in your life, you would probably have one of those two categories in in what has formed you, right? People, influential people, influential influential experiences, things that have shaped you, good or bad. And in in this imperfect family series that we're walking through, it's simply a reality that moms and dads have an unbelievable weight of the influence in the lives of their children, One that lasts a lifetime. And you could go and look at statistics on the absentee fathers and mothers and what that does in the life of their children. Because some of you could sit here today and you go, man, my mom, my dad was absent. They didn't shape me. Friends, their absence did. Or you could say, man, my mom, my dad was a workaholic. They were never home. They prioritized their career over me. They didn't shape me. Friends, their workaholism did. I was eating lunch with a guy one day, 
And uh, he told me, he said, man, when I get older and I have kids, there is no way that I am dragging them to church like my parents did to me. I just want them to come to their conclusions on their own. And I was buying the meal so I could uh, speak a little bit more frankly than if I wasn't, right? He, he ordered a soda, too. It was like an extra two fifty. okay? I was like, I'm going to put a little truth in here, right? And I told him, brother... But by not taking them to church, you are giving them a conclusion. And that place and those people have no bearing on their lives. Our decisions, our, the people in our lives, the experiences that we go through shape us. They form us. And you may have heard of a book uh, by a guy named Stephen Covey uh, called The Seven uh, Habits of Highly Effective People. Okay, pretty famous business book. And in this book, he gives uh, you an exercise called the funeral exercise. And what he wants you to do is he says, imagine you're at a funeral. Everyone is sad. There's weeping. There's flowers. People are sharing thoughts. And then Covey says, you, you imagine this, this whole thing, right, this whole experience. And he lets you in that the funeral that you are attending is your own. And in this funeral exercise, you're encouraged to ask questions that if this is your funeral, what do you want your spouse to say about you? What would you like your kids to say about you? And ultimately, what witness would the church or what God would give on your one and only life? It's a very powerful exercise to do. But there's another version of this, slightly less sad and slightly less morbid. And every parent in this room has already gone through it or is preparing to do it. And that's the day that your kids leave your home. And there isn't one parent in this room that would sit here and say, you know what? Yeah, I, um, I would love if my kids were just super unprepared for life. Like, I, like, not even know how to save any money or do laundry or anything like that. Not a parent in this room would say that. Because we have a desire underneath our our parenting to see our children formed. And so if we have a desire to see our children formed, the question becomes, formed into what? If you're a believer in this room, your desire for your kid is not ultimately to be the top of his class or to get a D1 scholarship or to make a lot of money so they can... Buy you or take you to the beach when you're older, or whatever that is. It's not even to live a perfect life. But your ultimate desire should be for your child to be formed to women and men of God, knowing the scriptures, tools in their tool belts that handle suffering and hard circumstances, have character and integrity, and live out the fruit of the Spirit. That is a desire for Christian parents. And if that second piece, besides the top of the class and the D1 scholarship, sounds outside of that, if that, that second piece sounds really attractive to you, the question that you're asking in your mind is like, okay, how? How do I get there? What do, what do I do? And where you start is intentionality. And so we've, in, we've, we've defined intentionality by actively forming your child in the way of Jesus. 
Intentionality is the act of formation. And before there's any people in the room that are about to tune me out for the next 20 minutes because they don't have kids or they're single or, or whatever it is, I, I love, my wife pointed out this like 30 minutes ago in our community group that our perf- imperfect family really describes a bigger family in the church. That the act of intentionality is a disciple-making idea. That you should be taking people under your wing who are younger than you, who are, you are ahead of in life, and showing them the way of Jesus. So if you are single, if you don't have kids, or your kids have already left your home, this is for you. Contextually, this is for you. And so if intentionality is actively forming your child in the way of Jesus, or your disciples in the way of Jesus, the reality is not... Are you intentionally forming your child? Because you are. But the question is, who or what is intentionally forming your child? So my daughter went to kindergarten a couple months ago, wrecked me, okay? I'm, I'm good now. I'm recovered, okay? I just, it was one of those goodbyes, right? Sending our children into the world. And as she comes home from school, uh, she's just like, spouting all this stuff that she's done. I'm like, man, where did you learn that? I find myself asking that question over and over. Where did you learn that? How did you learn that? And Mike has alluded to this before, that everybody in this room is actively or passively being formed on a daily basis. There are things that you do to form your mind, like read or listen to a podcast or, or, or write, Those are active things that you're actively shaping your mind. But there's also passive things that form your mind, like social media or television or news. And there's things in your kid's life right now that are very intentional about forming or discipling them in the way of the world. They are forming them. And I call these things scripts. You see, a script is a story that you believe to be true about yourself and the world around you. A script is something that you believe to be true, so you act upon that truth. We all are formed by a reality, right? That we can often see that's not true reality, but we believe in our hearts. So here's some of the cultural scripts that you may have heard before. One cultural script is that you must be true to yourself. That's a cultural script that's said over and over and over that the autonomy of self, that truth is found right here. And if anybody contradicts that truth, they're wrong and you're right. Another cultural script is that love is love. This is saying that I'm in charge of my own sexuality. I'm in charge of what I act upon. My desires are at the top of the food chain. Another one is my body, my choice, which is a aspect of freedom that's being co-opted by both sides right now, right? And so these scripts form us, right? And sometimes we look at these scripts that I just mentioned, these three scripts that I just mentioned, and we say, you know what? That culture out there, they are going downhill fast. I'm glad that nobody in the church has has co-opted these scripts as their own. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, which is a great, great book, I would highly recommend it, talks about five different areas in which Christians have co-opted these secular scripts. And before I say these, these are weighty, weighty statistics. 
And in no means are these, like, this is not a condemnation. This is a statistic to tell you one truth, and I'll get to that. So let's look at one, pornography. Two out of three Christian men watch porn monthly, at least, which is the same rate as men who do not claim to be Christian. Cohabitation. A Gallup poll found that almost half, 49% of teens with religious background, support living together before marriage. Divorce. 50% of marriages end in divorce. But if you look at church attenders, 60% who identify as Christians but rarely attend church have been divorced. 38% for people who regularly attend church. Homosexuality, transgenderism, huge hot topic right now, dividing the church, literally. 51% of evangelical millennials, my people, said that same-sex behavior is morally acceptable. And this is weighty right here, and this is outside the scope of what we're going to talk about today, and I don't want you to hear this as condemnation, but abortion. 70% of women who had an abortion identify as Christians. 43% said they attended a Christian church at least once a month or more at the time they aborted the baby. There's so much that goes into that statistic, so don't hear that as condemnation. But the point is clear, that self-proclaimed Christians are being formed into something that no way mirrors the way of Jesus. And the thing is, those are cultural scripts that we're hearing. These are things from the world. And what's even worse is we all have our individual scripts that we came in here walking into with. That people, some some people in this room have been abandoned their entire life, so they feel very worthless. And so what they do is they push away people so that no one can abandon them anymore. Some of you have been verbally abused and physically abused. So what do you do? You feel so broken that you don't know what to do. No one has stepped in and ever loved you. Some of you say, man, I have this past way back here that I've never let anybody on. How could Jesus love my past? How could he redeem me? See, you have these stories, you have these scripts, and you believe them, and you're formed by them, and you build your relationships around them. You view God through these scripts. And at this moment, I hope that you're asking, what's the answer? What are we doing? How do I fix this? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Deuteronomy 6. The book of Deuteronomy, just by way of introduction, is is largely a sermon. It's it's a set of sermons. It's preached by Moses to all of Israel before his death and, and not long before the conquest of the land under the leadership of Joshua. That's where we are right now. And so what Moses is doing, he's just retelling the law. That's what Deuteronomy means, the retelling of the law. Okay, And he's bringing them up to speed because they're about to go into this land with a whole bunch of gods, a whole bunch of cultural scripts that they're about to hear. And he's saying, this is what you need to know before you go here. And at the center of this book is 
the demonstration of God's faithfulness, his mercy to his sinful chosen people, that God will not and has not forsaken them. So Moses is motivating them. Be faithful to God. He's faithful to you. Be faithful to God. He's faithful to you. Trust and obey the law that he had given them 40 years earlier, which is important. Note that in your mind at Sinai. So it's in this context that God calls his people to listen. And probably when you hear uh, the, the, or see the word hear spoken by God, you should probably listen to it just generally in the Bible. Okay? So verse 4, it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. One commentator said of this verse, of of these verses, that this command is central to the whole book of Deuteronomy. It's what Jesus later quotes in Matthew uh, 22. The, the, the people were called to love God with all that they are, heart, soul, and strength. That word strength is muchness. It's actually, uh, this, I, it, we don't really have a word for it. It's all that you are. It's mustering all your strength to do so. And what he's calling the people to do is their allegiance, every dedication, all of themselves should be Uh, centralized in their love for God. And when they go into the land, their first and foremost goal is to be a people of God. Jen Wilkins says it this way, in the land of many loves, their love for God should reign supreme. They're going to be tempted with a whole bunch of things to love more than God. And what Moses is saying is, set your mind. Love him. But here's the thing that, uh, maybe a question that you never asked before. I don't know, you may have. Where does God get the power to point your allegiance to? Like, how come he gets to say, this is who should reign supreme in your life? Like, why, why does he get that power? Yeah, as a pastor, you often stumble into conversations about religion pretty easily, uh, on the golf course especially. <laughs> and uh, one time in particular, I uh, played with someone who was there working on two things, and that was his short game and his cussing, okay? And he was getting real good at the second one, like PGA level, like great, like, man, I didn't even know you use those words, okay? And about the third hole, you know, it was, he was one of those talkers, right? And about the third hole, he said, well, what do you do for a living? Like, glad you asked, my man. You know, like, it was like one of those things where, okay, where do I go with this? All right? Um, like, I could say priest, but that, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, so I said, you know, I'm a pastor. And immediately, no other follow-up, no other questions, not where you pastor, who you pastor, all that. He began to talk about his behavior. He began to say, you know, I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to get to church. 
I'm trying to love my wife and my kids and stop drinking so much. And he said this little line. He said, once I clean up my life a little bit, I'll get back into church. And after I, I, you know, I shortly shared the gospel in between, you know, not being in the fairway and, you know, shooting 10 over, okay, I was saddened by that conversation because one of the things that he said that really hurt me, not me in particular, but he, he was casting a, a light on Christianity. He was saying, this is what I believe pastors believe. This is what I believe churches believe. Because people have this idea of Christianity that God's love for them is dependent upon their rule keeping. Their unrighteousness or their righteousness somehow leads to God's stamp of approval. And so we ask this question, where does God get the power to say, where does my allegiance lie? We see this in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, you might recognize that chapter in thinking of the Ten Commandments, right? This is rules. So you're going, wait, why are you on the rule chapter? But think about this. Think about what God does in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2. He says, before he gives any rules, God spoke all these words, saying that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's God doing here? He, before any law is given, freedom was granted. The people were delivered from brutal slavery. You know the story. Through the means of a miraculous intervention of God. A God that one by one took on the gods of Egypt and showed his superiority. Showed that there was no God to rival the God of Israel. The gods of Egypt stood no chance. And before God could form his people into the people he would want them to be, he had to deliver them from freedom or from, from slavery into freedom. Before any formation began, there was an unconditional love and relationship that was bestowed upon the people through deliverance. There was freedom before formation. And this is so backwards. This is not my friend on the golf course. This is so backwards because from how we view our relationship with God sometimes, because we follow commands oftentimes so that we will earn deliverance, right? We think if we do these things, jump through these hoops, God's will, God will love us. But that's not how God's word tells us it happens. The word tells us that if you love God, you will obey him. Love and obey And the people are commanded to love God because God had already proved his love for them. And in context, doesn't this make the first command in Exodus 20 makes total sense? Why would you love another God? Why would you trust another God, the one that has freed you from the bounds of slavery? And God's command to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength, he's calling his people to complete whole body allegiance because he has delivered them heart, mind, and strength to himself. So do likewise and love me with all that you are. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, 
we see that it is in this vein that intentional parenting or intentional discipleship begins. Before you can form your children, before you can disciple other people in the way of Jesus, your heart must be set upon the love of God. That's what he says in verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In the psychology of the Old Testament, the heart is not the center of emotional life, but rather the seat of intellect or the rational side of humankind. And so to be upon the heart is to be one's, in one's constant reflection. It is to be uh, in the state of mind in what you have heard. And so what we see and what we understand from this is that an intentional parent is constantly setting their love upon God and reminding themselves of God's love for them. That's how this starts. How can you remind your children or your disciples of the love of God if you don't know it yourself? Intentional parenting begins in the heart. So if the question is that uh, is not, am I forming my child, but who or what is, and formation begins with our hearts and outward flow towards others, how is this done? And what God says next is super important because he begins to get specific, doesn't he? He begins to shape this intentional environment for how we are to pass down our faith to the next generation, but also to remember ourselves, right? So he says in verse 7 through 9 that you shall teach them diligently to your children. Let's stop right there for just a second. God says that you are to teach your children diligently. Uh, My dad was three things in my life. He was my dad, obviously. My basketball coach, he's a basketball coach for 30 years. He coached me in high school. And he was my principal in high school. So we often joke that it was three ways that he could yell at me, okay? Three different ways, three different environments. Couldn't get away. But one of the things that he did was he was a very intentional coach. And I, uh, in a former life, played a lot of basketball, okay? And one of the things that I did was shoot, shoot the basketball. And he taught me how to do that. And one of the ways he did that was he would take me two feet from the basket every time that we practiced, and we would drill the same things over and over, the same form, the same repetitive nature. When the Bible speaks about teaching diligently, this word is really, teach, is really drill. It's this repetitive impression. And if you've ever been in the athletic realm of things, you know that you don't just do a drill once. You probably do it every time you practice because the drills did what? Prepared you for a game, prepared you for reality. And so to teach diligently is to relentlessly impress into the minds of our children the things of God. So when they metaphorically get into the game of life, they are prepared. They see it. And this constant repetition is not just Wednesday night and Sunday morning. When is it done? We'll continue reading. It says, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the road. It, way and road are the same word. 
And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Here's what the, the, the principle behind this is. When you look at sit in your home, when walking along the road, and when you lie down and when you wake up, one of the sad realities about that statement is a lot of those times have been taken by technology. Stop texting and driving. Right? What's the last thing that you look at and the first thing that, uh, that you pick up in the morning? We've replaced these things. It's, it's captured a lot of our attention. And here's the principle behind this is that formation happens in the rhythms of life. Formation happens in the rhythms of life. It happens in the most basic habits of our days. One of the most freeing things for me as a parent was when I figured out that I didn't have to have a formal sit-down Bible study with my girls. Because here's what would happen. Okay, We would look at Genesis 1, God created. And then five minutes later, we're talking about how we can't eat tacos for breakfast. Like, How, how did we get there? I don't know. And we would just be like very frustrated trying to get, okay, well, how do, like, how do I, you know, steer this ship? But one of the things that, I, that we've learned in our parenting is that formation happens in the daily rhythms of life. And my wife is the best at this. She, be, she should be preaching this sermon because I've learned from her. Because when we're walking down the road, when we do our, our walk on, uh, at night and the sun's going down and we see the sunset or we see the beautiful orange moon that happened this week, we can point and stop and stare at that moon and say, man, look what God created for us to enjoy. He's such a great author of life. Or when we're cooking together, we can smell the ingredients and say, man, look what God created. He, he created all these flavors for us to enjoy. When we're driving down the road and someone cuts us off in traffic and we yell at them, because that's what happens, right? We could say, you know what? Daddy did not react the way that you're supposed to react in that situation. Forgive me. Forgive me. When you talk to men at night, and the last thing they hear is, I love you. But you know what? God loves you more than me. See, God goes even as far as to say, bind them as a sign on your hand, on your eyes, and your, and your doorpost and your gates. And, and they literally did this. I have a picture of, of this. And what this is called is a phylactery. And, and what they would do is they would literally put this on their, on their wrists and on their heads uh, right here on the front. And they would have these tiny scrolls that they would put uh, in these boxes and this is a physical reminder of the people around them that they were following the word of God. And I'm not trying to change anybody's wardrobe here. But what I am saying is that the principle is that we should be a physical manifestation of the word of God. That we should be people of God that wear the word of God outside of ourselves. And this doesn't mean to put, put it on your doorpost in your homes. It doesn't mean to go to Hobby Lobby and buy all their shiplap Bible verses stuff. That's not what that means, okay? You can do it. Go for it, okay? But more than buying that and hanging it on your wall, are you cultivating, it, cultivating an environment that lives those verses out? 
Are you, are, is your house full of harsh words and judgmental remarks where people are tiptoeing around? Or is it full of grace and forgiveness? Because God is giving a practical, intentional plan for forming our children because he knows, according to my favorite hymn, that we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. And he says, when you walk along the road, when you're sitting in your house, when you're about to rise up for the day and when you're about to lay your head on the pedal, pe- uh, pillow, remind yourself and your children and those around you who you love. So it's not if you are forming, but what is, right? What is? We're formed by people and experiences. So maybe a question that you're asking is how does this intentionality thing actually work? right? So you remember the scripts, right? A script is a story you believe about yourself or the world around you. And what intentionality does is fight against the scripts of the world that are coming into your home in the way of Jesus. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that so much of parenting is correction, right? It's figuring out what to allow and when and setting boundaries and discipling and disciplining and all of that. And so one of the things that the Bible teaches is that God is not a God of behavior management. He's a God of formation. And so the question in our parenting is not, should I, should I let my child watch this? If it's Bluey, go ahead and watch it, okay? It's a great show. But rather... Who will my child become if I allow this? It's a foundational shift in the way you think about what you allow. Because how many times do we do this? How many times do we correct correct a behavior without taking time to explain why this behavior could lead to ruin? How many times do we want the quick stop and let me move on to what I'm doing before we say, listen, this is why. I'm in student ministry, I see kind of the rising trends, and I'm going to give you one script that is hijacking our culture and our students and our teenagers in a pretty radical way. And that's the script of sexuality. Because we live in a very sexually confused time, and your child is being formed right now to believe something about their sexuality. And if the only time they hear things about love, marriage, and sex from the church, then you're behind. Because they're hearing things passively about love, sex, and the church, or and, and marriage, everywhere. Everywhere. But we shouldn't be afraid of that. Because, you know, one of the things that we do as parents is we have the talk, right? It's this talk about, what you don't do. And it often stops at what you don't do and doesn't get into the why. Now, I'm not talking about unwanted pregnancy. That's not what I'm talking about. Because oftentimes the the Christian script for sex is, hey, sex before marriage is really bad, so just stay pure. And I believe one of the reasons why our young people are so sexually confused is because they haven't been told the whole story. Because in the garden, Satan's lie to Adam and Eve was that God's design was not good for them. 
they were the ones in charge and that God was holding out on them and their flourishing. And so what Satan does is come into them and speak a whisper of character assassination upon God, that God is not good and God's story and God's way is not good. And so what intentionality does is it casts God's story as the best story. God has designed sex to be a part of his story. And the secular script is that sex and sexuality is at the center of your identity. And what's very sad is that the church often looks a lot like that. That sex is used as a way of self-fulfillment. And so if you hear that in your children, you can stop right there and say, listen, The only way you're fulfilled is through Christ. The only way for pleasure uh, everlasting is through Christ. There's a a guy, uh, a writer by the name of Jonathan Grant, he wrote a great book, weird title, called Divine Sex. I would highly recommend that you pick that up. But he talks about this idea of soulmate salvation. That a lot of the time in the church, we cast this idea of, hey, once you find that one, you're complete. You're you're good. And what sex and sexuality is within the culture is, is it's just an act, right? But Christianity teaches that it is an act between two people, man and woman, and it represents what? Being completely vulnerable to another person. He says this, Jonathan Grant says this, real intimacy requires giving ourselves faithfully and permanently to another person in vulnerable trust. And since God, here's the script that you're telling, since God is the author and creator and he knows how it should work best, he designed it to bring complete emotional and physical vulnerability and connection between man and woman. He even designed the brain to have chemical reactions to, uh, to form a bond between two people. And so in the Christian world, there is no casual sex. But this isn't all. The Bible talks about how two people are married. It actually represents the relationship between Christ and the church, that you belong to me and I belong to you completely. And here's one of the lies that we have to fight against the Christian world is that the wedding day is not the happiest day of your life. The wedding day in which Christ comes and redeems his bride is what you're really longing for. That's what your heart longs for. And your spouse and pleasure will not live up to the hype. The script is sex doesn't fulfill you. It's not your identity. God created it for a particular relationship that lends itself to trust and vulnerability. Intimacy reflects our relationship with him. And isn't that so much better than, hey, just don't do it. Don't do it. You see, God has created this intentional plan for the formation of your child. He knows how easily we can forget him and how easily we can believe lies. And you could do this for identity. You could do this for money. You could do this for success and suffering. But intentionality means that we're constantly pushing back against the false scripts with the truth. So where do we see this? Where is this modeled? You know, when I look at the Bible, I see an intentional God. I see a God in Genesis 1 
that creates all things down to the smallest particles. I see a God in Genesis 2 that gets down in the dirt and the mud to form humanity, puts his mouth on his nostrils and blows the breath of life into him. I see in Genesis 3 a God that connects with his creation before he casts them out. I see a God that chooses a people, delivers them, forms a relationship with them, and guides them in how to live in that relationship. I see a God on high seek to dwell among these people in a tent that he gives his people a way of atonement and forgiveness through sacrifice. And I see a God through the prophets that protects his holiness when his people are disobedient yet promises to stay faithful. And if the Old Testament told us what to do, the New Testament shows us how to do it through Jesus You see Jesus come down in the form of a man, the exact imprint of the holy God we see in Genesis 1. You see him dwell dwell among humanity, poor, homeless, and without any significant notoriety for 30 years. And after 30 years, he was baptized. And before he preached a sermon, before he healed a person, before he completed a miracle, his father declared to him, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There was freedom before formation. There was acceptance before behavior. And you see him choose 12 men. As his followers, 12 men. He's the son of God. He could do more than that, but he chose 12. And in that 12, he got three in his inner circle. And he would, he would preach to these people. And he preached a sermon that would flip the scripts and what they've heard in religion. And Sermon on the Mount would say that blessed are the poor in spirit. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not be anxious. And as Jesus was walking along the road, when they sat to eat, when they were lying down, and when they arose to, to, to walk in a new day, he taught them. He showed them. He formed them. And he showed them what it meant to depend upon God by going to prayer early in the morning. He showed them what it meant to love the outcast by dining with prostitutes and sinners. He elevated women and showed dignity uh, to the adulterer. He didn't just forgive his uh, enemies. He washed the feet and shared a meal with the one that would sell him out for a couple of dimes. And he taught them what the scriptures meant and showed them what the scriptures meant. He he taught them that all the scriptures pointed to him, that he was the son of God who came to uh, set the captives free. He said that he has come to do his father's will, that he would be crucified, that he would die, and that he would resurrect. And then one day in the garden while he was praying, his disciples, his friends fell asleep, (laughs) right? He was arrested, he was put on trial, he was condemned, and he was crucified while his disciples ran scared. And there was one disciple that saw him nailed. And who was that? John. And he saw his Savior nailed to a tree and hung to die. And in this moment, Jesus showed him his obedience and his love. Because obedience and love meet at the cross. 
There are many who don't understand the formative power of the gospel because you're busy trying to modify your behavior rather than trusting in the Savior who died for your deliverance. Friend, you're free. You're free. Paul would say this in Romans 8.1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in no place in the Bible is God after behavior management. He's after your formation, who you are. He's after who you are becoming. And God's plan for followers of him is to conform us into his image. Because we know that our image was marred by sin. And what sanctification is, is the scrubbing off of that sin, right? So that the image of Christ can come through. So we started with a question. And the question is not, are you intentionally forming your child? But rather, who or what is intentionally forming your child? And the principle is this. That just as Jesus formed his followers, we too are called to do the same. You're given a responsibility, a calling to follow in the way of Jesus, to set your heart upon the commands of God. And in that following, you're called to form others along the way. Intentionality is small, daily decision to impress upon others the way of Jesus. And here's the reality. Following the way of Jesus is going to make your family and you look different. You're not going to look like the world. You're not going to spend your money and your time and your resources the same way. And this call to form people on the way, along the way with Jesus, is not just for parents. <laughs> How small of an aspect would that be? But this is for grandparents. This is for single people. This is for people that have been hurt. And there's thousands and thousands of scripts that are after our hearts of you and your family in every spe- sphere of your life. There are too many Christians that look too much like the world and not enough like Jesus. And so the reality is, as you may feel at the end of this sermon series, like I felt when we had that, when we opened that envelope, weighty. The burden is there. Let me just encourage you. We have a God that takes burdens. And he invites you along his way. And he says, my way is easy and my burden is light. As we close, if you look at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's a hypothetical uh, situation. And that situation is that your kid would ask you a question. That would never happen, right? A kid never asks you questions. And what's even more is that your kid is asking you a why question, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, it says, The next time your child asks you, what do these requirements and regulations and rules that God, that the Lord God has given, what do they mean? And notice the answer in verses 21 through 23. He doesn't go into a retelling of the law. He says, tell him, tell him, 
that we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out there, from out there, uh, to, uh, to bring us in and to give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. Why are we to live God's way? The Lord God has freed us. He has shown his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on our Lord Jesus Christ. But he brought us to freedom, fulfilling the promise to save us. Tell your children, tell your disciples about the God who loves them, who created them, who sustains them and forms them. When we walk in him, we walk in pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. God, you have given us a way, a way to life and life abundantly. God, after a series of, uh, pra- of practical nature, of lots of do's and lots of pitfalls, it can often lead us to feel guilt and shame. Things that are heavy, uh, weighing heavy on our hearts that we're maybe just not doing. But God, I pray, I pray that you would release the people in this room from feeling shame and guilt. I pray that you would show them that you are a God of freedom. That you have taken their guilt and their shame from them. And I pray that you would enable them to set upon their hearts your love. And out of the overflow of their hearts, they would disciple, they would love the people that you have entrusted them with. We were slaves. They were free. God, thank you. As we sing this hymn in Christ alone, I pray that our minds will go to the great victory secured for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.